You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt. Again, going back to the example of I'm doing a securitization on Provenance and I'm saving $100, Provenance is going to capture $33 of economic from that. And again, as we look at the overall market dynamic, there's about $100 billion of intermediation that we've identified today. And every day we add more use cases and more opportunity set related to what we feel blockchain can release to the broader financial ecosystem. Today, we're joined by Mike Cagney, founder and CEO of Figure. Prior to founding Figure, Mike co-founded SoFi, a student loan refinancing and mortgage company with a multi-billion dollar valuation. Figure plans to use the blockchain to facilitate faster loan approvals with lower fees. Figure will offer a suite of consumer home equity products. After announcing a $50 million fundraise from top investors, Figure is also launching its own blockchain called Provenance that will have a proprietary token called Hash. Figure will be a traditional financial services company that will interact with the Provenance blockchain, and the Hash token will receive a pro-rata revenue share of the loans issued and securitized on the blockchain. I think you will greatly enjoy today's episode because Mike is one of the smartest minds in the financial services industry, and he is very thoughtful and articulate about the exciting future of blockchain technology. Welcome. Please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Hi, I'm Mike Cagney. I'm one of the co-founders at Figure, and Figure is the origin of Provenance, the blockchain that we're creating. Got a background in financial services. I started in 1994 at Wells Fargo, uh, ran financial products and structured product development, prop trading for the bank. Uh, left in 2000 to do my first startup, which was a wealth management technology company called Finiplex. Grew that, got it profitable, sold it to Broadridge, started a hedge fund called Cabazon. And in 2010, had an opportunity to go to Stanford to do a fellowship at the Graduate School of Business. While there, met my co-founders for SoFi, launched SoFi, grew that to one of the largest financial technology companies in the market. Left SoFi in 2017 and in early 2018 started Figure. So where did your interest in financial products come from? So having started my career at Wells Fargo, I got a chance to be exposed around a lot of financial products, a lot of financial innovation. The financial markets were always interesting to me. And what was very, very fascinating was watching in mid-2000s the development of the online lending marketplace, uh, what Chris Larson did with Prosper, what Renault did with Lending Club, and really following behind that in terms of what we did with SoFi and, and ultimately what we're doing with Figure today. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about Figure. What is Figure? What problems are you solving? So the interesting thing about Figure is that we created it because of what we're doing on blockchain. So we are creating a blockchain called Provenance, and it was very clear to us early on that without assets, no one would really take that blockchain seriously. We had to be able to put assets on the blockchain and drive adoption from the buy side and the sell side. So we created Figure to generate assets. And if we're going to create something to generate assets, we want to make sure that it's a valuable enterprise in itself. And so Figure is really taking advantage of the macroeconomic tailwinds of rising rates, the greenfield opportunity of a lack of ability for people to tap the equity in their homes, and launching two products. One is a home equity line of credit, and one is an alternative to a reverse mortgage called a buy rent back. And both those products are being originated native on blockchain. 
Yeah, so let's dive into this a little bit. So tell us more about um, the services that Figure specifically will offer. Uh, you touched upon those briefly, and then what provenance will offer. Sure. So effectively, Figure is an equity release business. So we have an alternative to a traditional HELOC. Uh, we can do a home equity line of credit in less than five minutes and fund you in less than five days. That's relative to the four months it takes that process today in the market. We have a buy rent back solution where we buy an individual's home and rent it back to them indefinitely. Uh, we think that's a much more compelling alternative to reverse mortgage. But both those assets are being originated exclusively on blockchain. And the intent in blockchain is to eliminate the massive amount of rent seeking that exists within the financial ecosystem. Yeah, so I read one of your posts on LinkedIn, which is very articulate and thoughtful, talking about the benefits of blockchain and why you decided to raise you know, equity capital for figure and, and what the benefits of blockchain are. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about what got you excited about the blockchain and why for your next financial endeavor, um, you wanted to integrate the blockchain. Sure. I think when you take the dynamics of trustless, immutable and distributed data and you intersect that with the function of a ledger, a registry and an exchange, you create an incredibly powerful mechanism to disintermediate the massive amount of intermediation that lives in financial services. Think about the amount of trustee, custody, administrator functions that go on. It sums up to the hundreds of billions of dollars per year. And blockchain is an incredibly powerful technology to unlock that. And how does Figure use the blockchain technology? So effectively, when we think about trustless, immutable, distributed, what we're doing is we're originating an asset on blockchain. It's a digital asset and it's native to the blockchain. And in the process of that origination, we're submitting everything about that asset digitally signed so that we're not representing that it's true, we're proving it's true. So credit reports, title reports, property value, each of these is going to a set of distributed stakeholders that take that data and effectively convert it into an encrypted hash, which is the chain. And what we're doing in that construct is creating a perfectly immutable record of asset provenance. So we know exactly whether the loan was originated correctly, whether the documents were all there, whether they weren't. And that has extremely valuable downstream benefits. And is the integration with blockchain fully abstracted for the user? If I'm trying to unlock you know, equity value in my home in Missouri, and I don't know what the blockchain is, is that an issue if I want to participate and work with figure? So what you're getting as a consumer is ultimately a lower rate. And what happens is in the beginning, we've designed a blockchain, for example, to reduce 86 basis points out of the cost of securitization. And the first adopters of that are going to realize the bulk of that 86 basis points, it's economic rent. But over time, as more people come in and use that, that 86 basis points will be competed down through lower price and ultimately the consumer benefits. So from a consumer perspective, you don't see the blockchain, it's abstracted to you, but over time you're getting the benefit of a lower cost because of the improvement in technology. And how does Figure interact with other protocols, if at all? So what's unique about Figure is it's its own native chain. So it wasn't built on Ethereum. The token Figure is not an ERC, or, sorry, in Provenance is not an ERC-20 token. And so effectively what Provenance is, is a standalone blockchain. The token native to Provenance is called Hash. It's registered on Provenance, so ownership is tracked on the blockchain itself. And today it doesn't interact with other protocols. And how do individuals or corporations or consumers interact with Hash on a Provenance blockchain? So when I'm a member and I'm submitting a loan on blockchain or doing a securitization or a warehouse financing, whatever it is I might be doing, I'm paying Hash to access the blockchain. 
And the amount of hash that I pay is indexed to the fiat benefit that I get from using the blockchain. So for example, if I'm going to save $100 in a particular transaction by using blockchain, we're going to charge $33 to access that. And I'll be buying $33 of hash that I pay into the blockchain to provide to submit my transaction. Some of that hash gets distributed to the stakeholders to generate a return on stake. Some of that goes to the foundation to cover the costs. But the majority of that goes to all the other hash holders. So what hash is, in effect, is a pro rata revenue share of the fees that are paid into blockchain. So it has a fundamental underlying intrinsic value. And the primary use cases for this today are for loan origination, for pooled vehicle or fund creation, for debt issuance. But we've identified about $100 billion of opportunity across fixed income, equity, commodities that we think blockchain can unlock by eliminating the intermediation of the trustee, the custody, the administrator functions that have existed historically. So you're obviously incredibly well connected in the financial services space. What types of parties do you want to have involved with your blockchain and with hash? And you know, what types of parties do you want investing in hash to benefit from the pro rata revenue share? Sure. When we think about the ecosystem for provenance, effectively, there's three parties that are involved. We've got the stakeholders that are hosting smart contracts that take data and, and encrypt and uh, add and pen to the chain. Those are primarily financial institutions. So they're buy and sell side firms that we've had long relationships with that we've gone through in a very extensive diligence process to get them on board as, as stakeholders in the chain. We have a foundation that's responsible for the permissioning of the chain. So the chain's what we would call a public protocol and that no one's excluded from accessing, but there's a permissioning process. So if I wanna put a loan on the blockchain, for example, I have to be able to prove that I can originate that asset and perfect interest in the collateral. So I have to show my lending license, my promissory notes, et cetera. But in terms of just participating in the context of buying and selling hash, I simply today have to be an accredited investor and pass KYC AML, and I have the ability to go on and do that. We have a set of members that are everyone from loan originators to hedge funds to conglomerates that issue debt that are using the blockchain for their economic benefit. And, and we continue to expand that membership base out. And effectively, the more usage that we have on blockchain, the more use cases we de-risk, the more participation that we have, the more valuable that underlying token is as it's representing the, the expected future value of the revenue share it captures. So going back to the example of a homeowner in Missouri who wants to unlock some equity value, they see they're attracted to the lower rates on figure. You know, Some of their the metrics about their equity unlocking product are put on the blockchain. Is that public data? Is that uh, encrypted data? Is there any kind of privacy issues uh, with provenance? So all the data that goes on provenance is encrypted. So from the originator to the stakeholders, the process is encrypted with that originator's public key. The stakeholders are then encrypting that as part of the blockchain. So we use an elliptical hash for that encryption process. And the data is permission at a field level. So if I want you to be able to see certain characteristics about a loan, but not a name and a social security number, for example, I have the ability to do that. And so the data is encrypted at all times on the chain. What is the business model for Figure? And you touched upon a business model a little bit for Provenance, but if you could just talk about how both will either generate you know, revenue or the revenue sharing model for Provenance a bit more. So Figure is really a financial services platform. And we can think of this analogous to other marketplace lenders in that it's using technology to originate assets more quickly, more seamlessly at lower burden to the consumer. 
and the current products, as I mentioned, are the, uh, an alternative to a home equity line of credit and an alternative to reverse mortgage. And so its economic model is relatively straightforward. It originates assets, it charges origination fees, and, and those fees drive the revenue for figure. Provenance is effectively generating revenue related to the fiat benefit that it delivers people using provenance for whatever the purpose or whatever the gains are that they have. So again, going back to the example of I'm doing a securitization on provenance and I'm saving $100, provenance is going to capture $33 of economic from that. And again, as we look at the overall market dynamic, there's about $100 billion of intermediation that we've identified today. And every day we add more use cases and more opportunity set related to what we feel blockchain can release to the broader financial ecosystem. And fast forward a couple of years, what's the big vision for this uh, joint blockchain figure business model here? I think for figure, it's going to become a financial services platform and, and it will compete with some of the other larger financial platforms out there. But for provenance, there's an enormous opportunity because if we go across all the different aspects and businesses that provenance is affecting, Look at the traditional trust and custody entities like the Bank of New York or State Street or Northern Trust. Look at the custody platforms like Deposit Trust Clearing or MERS. Look at the exchanges like ICE. All these things are vulnerable to what blockchain is going to bring to the ecosystem. And, and so we see a tremendous opportunity to really transform in a way that we haven't seen in over 50 years how the financial ecosystem works with blockchain technology. Mike, oftentimes in the crypto ecosystem, you hear people say, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin, blockchain, not crypto. And, and what does that mean to you? And how do you think about that? I mean, obviously, this is a very practical application of blockchain, being able to reduce the fees by 86 basis points in some cases. Do you agree with that type of statement? Well, it's been interesting to see the evolution because uh, certainly a few years ago, everything was crypto and then it became blockchain. And now people don't even want to use the term blockchain. They call it DLT yeah. for distributed ledger technology. The reality is that Bitcoin is a phenomenal example of blockchain technology, and Bitcoin is extremely powerful in what it represented, and, and it has a, a significant place in terms of its use as a medium for transaction, for payment, and so forth. I think one of the biggest challenges that we had as we were thinking about blockchain is we wanted to be able to originate a digital asset native on chain. And there's a lot of talk around the tokenization of assets where I use a token on chain to represent an off chain asset. That introduces a lot of problems because then you have two representations of the single entity that don't have to stay in sync. And so one of the big issues we had is that if you go across the blockchain technology available, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, there's no ability to originate that native asset in a way that is effective both in terms of the origination process and the ultimate ability to pull the data back out. So that required building our own blockchain, which is what provenance is. It's underscored with some fabric and hyperledger, but most of this was custom built by our team. And blockchain itself has enormous application, but we just have to be pragmatic about what it can and can't do. I think the IBM commercials about using blockchain to track strawberries is not a very good representation because you have no provenance of that asset. If you can't control provenance, then whatever you put into the blockchain is only as good as the source of data that you put there. It's no panacea. 
Let's talk a little bit about your team. Are both Provenance and Figure teams uh, in the same building? Are they separated? Is there a cross-collaboration between the two? So right now it's the same team. And, and what we've done is we've set up the foundation for Provenance. And over time, we'll migrate folks into out of Figure and into Provenance, in particular, some of the blockchain and some of the compliance and diligence folks. But right now it's the same team. So it's effectively a shared service contract that we do into Provenance. But within the next 12 months, Provenance will be independently operated. What else have you seen in a space that's something like this? You know, a very seasoned um, financial services team, uh, you know, using the blockchain technology to reduce fees or increase transparency and have an ultimate benefit to consumers. Is this is this a first of its kind? I don't want to call it a first of its kind. I, I think there's been efforts by various blockchain initiatives, um, digital asset holdings, R3, others to try to crack this nut. I think what was unique about our approach was, again, we realized that building the technology on its own, no matter how elegant that technology, it would be very hard to engage the financial services community because if they don't have to be engaged, they won't. And I think back to a a meeting that we had maybe about four months ago in New York, and it was six major financial banks, ourselves and and a major law firm in the securitization space. And it was to go through the ability to perfect interest in an asset on blockchain, the the ability to do securitization, the ability to enforce contracts. And we got the right answer out of the the law firm, which was everything that we did off-chain, we could do on-chain. And I remember the, the reaction of the financial firms. It was both a combination of excitement about what the technology meant and dread about the requirement that they now had to actually take it seriously, that it wasn't something that they could wait for 2021, 2022. And I think that's been one of the challenges in blockchain is that we haven't had real practical applications and we've been promising far future dates in terms of when blockchain would have a meaningful impact. And so what we did was we used our ability and credibility to generate assets as a forcing function to get the buy side to participate on blockchain. And and those initial discussions certainly weren't easy. A lot of the buy side firms said, I want to buy the assets. Do I really need to deal with the the blockchain? Can we just do this off chain? And of course, our whole motivation in creating figure was to facilitate adoption on blockchain. So the answer was no. And then going to the sell side firms, getting them to agree to finance assets on blockchain and perform other functions. You can imagine the amount of work that we had to do sitting down with lawyers, compliance, regulators, and and get everyone comfortable to, to join the ecosystem. And at the end of the day, that's effectively the moat that we built. When you think of it from a competitive dynamic, the technology itself is open source. We'll contribute it back into the Hyperledger repository. But the defense is the ecosystem. It's getting the buy side firms, the sell side firms, the regulators all comfortable with what we're doing. And that was an enormous amount of upfront work and, and something that we've been unique in executing on. What lessons and insights and benefits has your team taken from the existing crypto open source community? It's a humbling process every day to be doing Greenfield and doing things that no one's done before. It's both exciting and it's also challenging. And, you know, I've been quoted multiple times saying the path to success is never linear. There's lots of ups and downs in the path. I think that there's been some great work done on blockchain, great work done on encryption. We're very hopeful of work in in the zero knowledge proof space, which is still nascent and and probably not ready to be tapped from a a true primetime basis. But it's a great ecosystem. And the concept of open source is, I think, very bold and revolutionary and very important for the ecosystem that this should not be a technology is a technology moat, should not be technology owned. Um, There's incredible value for us to 
all contribute back and to build off of this on a derivative basis and make better and better uh, solutions. So you found a very compelling opportunity uh, to apply blockchain to more traditional financial services. What do you see as the evolution of figure and provenance? Are there other areas you're interested in and, and want to pursue after you do a good job mastering this first use case and first product offering? We're already going after the title market. And we think title is a phenomenally applicable use case into blockchain. If you think about real estate title today and title insurance, the challenge that you have in title is that what's recorded at the recorder office isn't necessarily what's been conveyed in terms of my selling a home to you or a property to you. And that gap is effectively what title insurance is covering you for. And if you could use blockchain to both manage conveyance and recording, you could eliminate that need for title insurance. And so there's an enormous application there, not just in real estate title, but auto title, marriage licenses. There's an interesting study that was done a couple years back out of Cook County in Illinois along these lines. And it set a ground or a framework for an approach for blockchain that I think the technology is now at a point that it can deliver into. So we'd like to be able to be doing real estate title as early as the first half of next year on chain. And that has obviously an implication of the $15 billion a year title insurance market. Um, but also when you put title on chain, it becomes a digital asset and you get all the other benefits of a digital asset in that construct. Yeah, I remember um, when I was at business school and we had a class talking about blockchain technology, one of the use cases that everyone was excited about was putting title insurance and, and, and putting um, your homeownership on the blockchain. And we talked about that in some of the developing LIDAM countries and how big of an issue that is. So that would be great to see that actually uh, come to fruition. Or figure and provenance tied at the hip in terms of their success? Can one work without the other? Effectively, the way that this worked is we capitalized figure and figure built the blockchain. And what we did is set up a foundation to administer provenance, which serves at the benefit of the token holders. So the token holders can replace that foundation. And we sold the code to the foundation in exchange for a portion of the token stock. And so at this point, Figure is an interested party in the blockchain in the sense that we want adoption. It drives up the value of the token of which we hold. But Figure's peri pursuit to any other member. We have no special rights. We have no board representation to the foundation. We exist as any other member does on provenance. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think the best model is going forward for the more standard financial services companies to interact and kind of network with a blockchain? Do you think this is the right structure where you sell the code and then you own a piece, you have a right to the piece of the foundation? One of the challenges that the financial services firms have is they they want to control the blockchain, or at least some do. And the challenge with that is to make the blockchain effective, it has to be a registry. And if it's a registry and an enforceable registry, having a single owner of that is not not tenable. And one of the common questions that I get, and one of the common questions I ask a lot of people that promote blockchain is, why don't you use a database? So there's great database representations out there like Palantir that's immutable, it's trustless. So it characterizes some of the aspects of blockchain, but not all of them. The best answer is if it's a registry, it can't be owned or, or held in one spot. It has to be distributed because otherwise, if it's hacked, if there's malfeasance, there's too much risk that one would have and one couldn't trust that online registry and would have to maintain an offline representation, which means the online doesn't work. So a distributed ledger that isn't owned by any single entity with a foundation that administers permissions, which is critical for financial institutions because they can't be involved with KYC AML issues, for example, 
but is open and public so that it's not a subjective process to determine memberships. It's objective against a set of rules. That's the right foundation for the financial ecosystem. So speaking a little bit more about the capitalization of figure, tell us a little bit about your fundraising to date. Sure. So we raised uh, a little over $50 million in figure in March of this year. It was uh, significantly oversubscribed. It was a bit of a challenge. People call this a high-class problem when you're oversubscribed, but I can tell you the operative word there is problem in managing all the investor expectations. The original goal was to raise $25 million, and it, it grew because we had so many members of the ecosystem that wanted to participate in what we were doing. But what we're doing now is we will capitalize provenance and we'll capitalize provenance by selling hash, the token, which I view as analogous to equity on the blockchain. So if I think about traditional private equity, I'm buying the present value of an income stream. I have a relatively illiquid asset. It's dilutable. I don't know how much incremental equity could be raised. And and I've got some form of voting right. In the context of hash, the token that one pays to submit transactions on provenance that's distributed back to the token holders and, and in the stakeholders in the foundation, what I have is a revenue right. And I'm using the same discounted cash flow methodology, but I'm discounting the revenue as opposed to the net income. I don't need to take into consideration the idiosyncratic risks of the firm. I'm just looking at the straight revenue stream. And it has the benefit of being non-dilutable. It's liquid because it's being bought and sold to access the provenance technology, and it has voting rights to the foundation. And so we're going to set up a structure to basically capitalize the foundation, get the token in circulation. And what we ultimately want to do is make that token a public security. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I think it'll be really helpful for the ecosystem to have more sophistication around valuation for a lot of these products. I mean, oftentimes when people talk, what is the right value for Bitcoin as a non-producing asset? It's really hard to have a sophisticated answer that you know everyone can agree upon. But you know, having an asset like this that's on the blockchain, like hash, you can begin to do different types of discounted cash flow models and begin to you know value it a bit more. So hopefully that brings more sophisticated investors into the space and continues to to grow the ecosystem. So, Mike, what is um, the biggest risk or some of the biggest risks to figure in provenance not working? So I think from generally people consider the regulatory risk is the big risk. And, and I think we've done a lot from a regulatory standpoint to work with the SEC to make sure that what we were doing and what we are doing is consistent with guidelines, not requiring a no action letter and so forth. And so I, I don't think it's a regulatory risk. I think we've done a lot to de-risk adoption. So the amount of work that we've done evangelizing this with large financial institutions and getting them on board and participating, whether it's as a stakeholder, as a financer, as a takeout for assets that are being generated, I think the financial ecosystem buys into the technology and the value proposition there. So the way that we look at it, our biggest risk is just our ability to execute. We have so many things that we want to do. When you're, when you're in a greenfield opportunity like this, you can be overwhelmed by opportunities. And, and so, you know, for example, the title opportunity that we have outside of the financial ecosystem, I wish I could get that done this quarter, but the reality is I can't. I've got too many other things that, that we have to execute on. And so it's just staying focused and continuing to deliver and grow the ecosystem and demonstrating value. And it's more of an internal risk as opposed to an exogenous risk. And that's what you want as an entrepreneur. You want to be able to control your ability to succeed and and de-risk those things that you can't control. How can our listeners follow the progress of figure and provenance and, you know, follow the uh, the progress of the launch of the blockchain? 
we're talking about ways to expose provenance to the broader public. And so I'd just say stay tuned on that. Um, we've obviously gotten a huge amount of reverse inquiry and in about provenance and about hash. And as we're building out and now that we've established the foundation and codifying the, the membership structure, there should be a way for folks to get more visibility in the coming weeks. Let's talk a little bit about the crypto ecosystem and maybe we can start with what are some trends in the crypto ecosystem you're observing right now? Well, I think one of the biggest trends is that the investment community is looking for crypto assets that have an underlying intrinsic value. So something they can reference to. I I think the original models were really based around scarcity. Um, There was some application of usage to things like remittance and so forth with Bitcoin and Ripple. But now the the ecosystem is really starting to say, look, let's see what the underlying intrinsic revenue is. And that that's a healthy evolution that will significantly reduce the amount of volatility in the crypto assets when there's an underpinning to that asset value. And so I, I see that evolving. And, you know, as I joked about earlier, I, I, people have stopped using blockchain and start calling as call it DLT now, because when Bitcoin's at 6,000, it's DLT. When Bitcoin's at 20,000, it's blockchain. <laughs> yeah. But it's still blockchain. And so what we're seeing is more widespread adoption. I think, you know, what we're doing with the financial institutions, that's probably one of the most risk averse ecosystems that one can deal with. And the fact that we're getting them comfortable and transacting on chain is, you know, hopefully, a, a great icebreaker for other companies to come in behind that and take advantage of that market. Yeah, as you go deeper into the blockchain ecosystem, building provenance, and you know, you start spending time thinking about wallets and start spending time thinking about listing services and you know, different consumer UI UX. And what are some products uh, or some gaping holes that you really want built and solved? Well, I think one of the biggest gaping holes, and and this goes back to my zero knowledge proof comment earlier, is. If you think about a distributed stakeholder chain, you're submitting encrypted data into that stakeholder who is receiving that data and in a stateless period, decrypting it to re-encrypt it onto the chain. And in theory, they could hack that contract and they could look at that information as it flows through. Now, they'd have to do that exactly at the point of a transaction and they'd only get that single key. So every asset has a unique key. They're not getting an ability to look at the overall encrypted information. And this is why you have a stakeholder structure, because you can effectively monitor their, their doing this action and they would forfeit their stake and, and give up their position as a stakeholder in a node if they did that. But it would be a lot cleaner if we had zero knowledge proof. And then there wouldn't be any question about the ability of someone to act in, inappropriately or act in a malfeasant way. And that's from a technical standpoint, one of the big things that we're waiting for. We, we've tried to do interim steps with things like trusted execution environments, and they have vulnerabilities and weaknesses related to them that are that are idiosyncratic to those solutions. So zero knowledge proofs from a technical standpoint is really one of the most interesting things that we'd like to see come to fruition. No, I completely agree. So, Mike, you speak very fluently and articulately about the blockchain technology, you know, referencing zero knowledge proofs and elliptical curves. Where are you learning about blockchain and, and, and what resources have you been using to get smart on, on the uh, technology? If you go all the way back to when I, I started at Wells in, in 94, I, I was fortunate to do a lot of work on AI then. And so I did a lot of genetic algorithm, neural network work. It was back when we had no computational power. So I would submit code into Scripps Supercomputer Center overnight, and it would almost inevitably come back in the morning with a stack overflow error because I couldn't write my code very well. But it gave me an appreciation for technology in a, in a way that I think was unique given my markets exposure as well. 
And so in the beginning, when I heard about blockchain, I was a skeptic because I, I heard about Bitcoin. I didn't really understand it. And I, I kind of dismissed it. And one day in late 2017, after I'd left SoFi, I'd, I'd been spending some time looking at blockchain and I knew that there was something there, but I didn't actually get what it was. And one day I was reading and I wish I remember what it was, but I had an aha moment. I finally understood what it meant to have a decentralized trustless immutable record and what that meant for the financial ecosystem. In particular, if you could apply that not just to a ledger, but to a registry and an exchange. And that's where it's been one of the most exciting processes to build this out, apply it, bring the market into it, because it really is a revolutionary technology. I, I think blockchain is going to do what due to financial services, what the spreadsheet did, you know, 50 some years ago. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. What are some projects in the blockchain space or DLT space that you're particularly excited about? Obviously, the the one that we're we're engaged on, and we're we're very excited about. I think that one of the areas that I'm I'm really keen on that we're not working on is identity, and I think identity is an, a tremendous blockchain application. I think it's an extremely hard problem to solve. But I think it's something that has to be solved. And I know Soros, for example, has put a lot of resources into this in, in third world countries in terms of identity, identity, land rights, property rights. These are all things that we often take for granted in, in the U.S., although we shouldn't. And anyone who's had identity theft knows that you shouldn't. But these are huge applications that whatever I'm doing in financial services will be dwarfed by whoever solves these problems. So fast forward to 2025, what is different about our financial system compared to today? If I really think about this in a, in a way that I'm not constrained by some of the realities of regulation and firm action and so forth, one of the things that I think can happen is the blockchain can become a uniform and global registry for everyone. So it becomes a general ledger. And if you think about it, there's no real reason why each institution has its own general ledger. There's no benefit in that. There's a massive economy of scale in having a single ledger. It provides for instantaneous transfer of value and transfer of assets and transfer of information. And so seeing a public utility like a general ledger for the financial ecosystem being built on blockchain and deploying that, that's where I think we're going to end up. I don't know that it's going to be 2025 because I think that it's difficult to get that many institutions to collaborate, although they did it with Visa, they did it with ACH. So it's certainly not unprecedented, but I see blockchain as becoming the global register and ledger for the financial ecosystem. Yeah. And final question. I mean, how do you think about the future valuation of the financial services sector as there are more applications using blockchain. I mean, obviously, there's going to be fee compression, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot more financial innovation and financial product um, creation. So I think there's two paths on this. I think the, the immediate path is there's certainly economic rent that the financial ecosystem is pulling out of blockchain. And so, for example, if you use Provenance today to do a securitization, you're going to do that 86 basis points cheaper than your rival. And ultimately, that will be competed out. But there's there's rent that you can earn today. And there's great financial innovation that happens. So for example, if I put title on blockchain, I now have the ability to sell half my house to someone. And the financial engineering that comes out of that is real and significant. But the one thing that I think is in the back of everyone's mind is blockchain disintermediates. And a financial institution at its core is an intermediary. And so it's really interesting to think about what does a financial services firm look like 20 years forward with blockchain? What is that role? 
because the process of them intersecting or intermediating between capital sources of capital and uses of capital potentially is at risk with the technology. And it's not that the institution goes away. It's that the institution evolves into something that looks very different than what it is today. And I think those firms that are progressive and thinking about that are going to be in a unique situation to take advantage of what blockchain is going to bring. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly in the wall in your old colleagues' board meetings at Wells Fargo to understand how they're thinking about blockchain and you know how they can uh, start adopting the technology to get ahead of the curve here. Because I'm, I'm totally with you that this is going to re-architect our financial system. They're definitely thinking about it, as are all the other banks right now. And I, I can tell you one of the things that's been helpful in our approach into, into blockchain is it wasn't something that no one had heard of or wasn't thinking about. I was actually I've been extremely impressed by the level of knowledge the financial institutions have had. I've been extremely impressed by the level of knowledge the regulators have had. I, I think everyone is very focused on this and it's real. The key takeaways from today's episode are, one, Figure is a financial services company that will offer faster and cheaper home equity products to consumers. Two, Figure will abstract away the use of blockchain technology to the consumer, but will integrate with a new native blockchain called Provenance. Three, offering faster and cheaper loans is a practical use case for blockchain technology that is going after a $100 billion plus market. And four, Mike is one of the smartest minds in financial services and is exciting to see him adopt blockchain technology with the Provenance blockchain. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at zach at wing.vc.